thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. This week, is there anybody out there? We're pushing at the boundaries of science in the search for ET. We take a magnifying glass to the big questions. What is life? Where can we find it? And could we ever communicate with it? Plus, the blood test that can tell you how long you'll take to recover from surgery, a new muscle-inspired glue that even works underwater, and 76 years after penicillin was first discovered, how scientists are combating antibiotic resistance. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, if you or someone close to you has ever had major surgery, you'll know that it's a big shock to the system and it takes time to recover. But it's not the same for everyone. And while some people seem to spring back quickly, others end up exhausted and weak for quite a while. Anaesthetist Bryce Goodyear and his colleagues at Stanford University in California think they've figured out what causes these differences. And it could lead to new tests to help predict recovery time or even new drugs to help you get back on your feet more quickly. There's a nice theory about the biology of the response to surgery or trauma. And I can take you back 40,000 years ago when the cavemen were fighting the saber-toothed tiger. And the tiger sometimes would just chop one of their legs or arm. And that was a major injury like surgery. Well, the body developed this way to deal with a major injury by producing a profound inflammatory response, fighting off pathogens and starting the wound healing process. But interestingly, after that, there's an anti-inflammatory response where the body is actually immunosuppressed. And associated with this immunosuppressed state is a sickness behavior. That behavior keeps the caveman in, in, inside the cave, you know, away from the tiger, away from danger. It has a, an evolutionary purpose. But that's also what, you know, we're measuring when we're measuring recovery. It's this sickness behavior that you have to go through before becoming, you know, coming back to your baseline and, and being well again. So basically our immune system just after the surgery kicks into action and then afterwards it gets damped down and this is what's making us feel bad. You know, this theory has been around for quite a while, maybe 20 years, but it's pretty interesting that the immunological basis of this theory are really not understood. And that's the other question that we wanted to tackle. What are the cells that are important in this immune response to surgery or to trauma in general? And what do these cells do? And how do you relate what the cells are doing, the immune cells I'm talking about, how do you relate what they're doing with how patients recover? Tell me a little bit about what you did. What were you measuring in patients to try and find out what's the difference between them? The surgery was the hip replacement, which is considered a middle range to major surgery with lots of blood loss, uh, significant trauma. And we studied a total of 32 patients. Clinically, we were following these patients every three days 
for a period of six weeks. And we're measuring very precisely their recovery using three parameters, fatigue, pain, and function. But at the same time, and that's where the approach that we took was, was quite novel, we used a new technology called CYTOF to profile the immune response uh, of these patients with very, very high resolution. And this CYTOF thing, all it does is to measure many, many parameters in every cell present in a blood sample. And there are million, millions of these cells, about two millions in each blood sample. This, this allows us to know what kind of cell it is, but also what the cell is thinking. What did you find in these patients' immune systems? The most dramatic finding was the expansion of a particular cell type. This particular cell type is present at very low frequency in your, in your blood at baseline. You can barely measure them. And they expand dramatically after surgery, as much as tenfold. Not only that, but their activity level within the first 24 hours after surgery, those were strongly associated with how quickly a patient would recover from surgery. So if you measure their activity level shortly after surgery, you can predict what the patient would look like, you know, weeks afterwards. What's the practical application? What can you do with this now that will help people? So several, several things. Uh, first, I, I wouldn't dismiss the, the information that you get from, from being able to tell a patient how long it will take to, to recover. But because we're getting at the molecular aspects of this immune response, now you can start thinking about different ways to target these cells pharmacologically and see if you can modulate their activity and intervene to improve patient's recovery. That's Bryce Goodyear at Stanford University in California. In March this year, the US BICEP team of astronomers claimed to have found the long-sought evidence for cosmic inflation, one of the mechanisms that underpins what happened in a fraction of a second after the Big Bang when the universe began. Inflation has been theorised for decades and the results caused quite a big stir in the scientific community with talk of Nobel Prizes being awarded to the astronomers concerned. But just this week, these findings have been called into question because Europe's Planck satellite mission published data suggesting the BICEP results might have been contaminated by cosmic dust. Greer Jackson is with us. She's been looking at the story. So what's, first of all, the background to this? As you mentioned already, inflation was a theory developed in the 80s to help explain what happened in the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And what happened in inflation is that space expanded very, very fast, faster than the speed of light, from something the size of a proton, so smaller than an atom, all the way to what we now see as the observable universe. And this happened all within a fraction of a second. So according to this theory, the expansion would have caused a sort of ripple in space and time, waves of gravity. And these waves and ripples have left like a pattern on the sky, so to speak, that we could potentially now see. And this is what BICEPT have claimed to have seen, this polarised cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMB. So if these waves are there then it lends credence to the theory of inflation. It tells us what must have happened in the early epoch of the universe during those very, very early times when it was growing very rapidly. Precisely, yeah. It puts us that much closer to seeing the origins of our universe and how it came to be. And I've heard about physicists talking about this could be, you know, discovery of their lifetime sort of thing. So it's caused a really big stir in the scientific community. Um, a ripple, even. Yeah. A ripple, yes, precisely. <laughs> not just in space-time. <laughs> and what has Planck now done? Because to put this into perspective, Planck is a satellite mission 
that launched from the European Space Agency 2009, I think mm-hmm. it was, wasn't it, to try and probe some of these and other questions. So what is the Planck probe saying? It's worth just stepping back a little bit here and talking about what BICEP did. So BICEP looks at a very small section of the sky and is looking at one frequency or colour, and that's what they were monitoring in the sky, whereas Planck looks at a huge area in the sky and is looking at multiple frequencies. And these frequencies that Planck is looking at are much more sensitive to things like cosmic dust, the dust in the sky from asteroids, comets and when stars explode. So what Planck have now done is they've looked at exactly the same area of sky that BICEP have looked at and they have they now think that actually there's a much more dust than they previously thought and um, this dust is imitating the polarised CMB. The shortfall of the BICEP mission, and we actually had them on this programme at the beginning of the year when they made this announcement, was that they looked at just this one discrete frequency because we asked them, why didn't you look at others? And they said, well, our instrument's set up to look at that particular colour of, of light. Planck now say uh, they've looked at other colours, you're saying, and that actually you may be able to explain those initial observations on the basis of, of dust. So what do the BICEP people say about it? BICEP have always been wanting to corroborate these results. It's just only now that the Planck satellites come available to actually look at this segment of the sky. So they haven't commented on it, so to speak. It's always been in the pipeline that they're going to come together and look at results together to see whether actually it is this sort of cosmic dust that's causing this this signature in the sky or whether actually we really are seeing a signature of the beginning of our universe. Ironic that the guys who discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation, and it won them a Nobel Prize in in the 1960s, this is um, Wilson and Penzias, um, they actually first of all thought that pigeon poo on their antenna was the cause of this funny signal they were seeing and, and it turned out that was the afterglow of the Big Bang. Now these guys might actually have done the reverse and claim to have seen something that is caused by the space equivalent of pigeon poo, cosmic dust. So what does this actually mean, though, in real terms? Are they now saying we're going to go and do some more studies or what? So the Planck people and BICEP people are now coming together to look at the results because, as I said before, they're quite different data sets, um, apples and oranges, if you like. So they're now looking to put these results together, see what the results are, and we should actually see uh, something coming out at the end of the year, whether it really it was dust or whether we are seeing the beginning of our universe. So there may still be a Nobel Prize up for grabs. Gray, thank you very much, Gray Jackson. And Planck's data uh, that Gray was describing was published just this Monday gone in the online journal Archive. Still to come, what decides whether caterpillars go for bright warning colours or the camouflaged look? But first, how muscly are mussels? These shellfish produce sticky protein substances that they use to anchor themselves to rocks and other surfaces. Now, by adding the gene that the mussels use to make this glue to E. coli bacteria, scientists from MIT have been able to produce a powerful adhesive that will work underwater and with applications ranging from repairing ships to sealing up human surgical wounds. Amelia Perry spoke to Timothy Liu, who led the work. Well, mussels have this really impressive ability to stick to surfaces underwater. And so what we've been inspired to do is to use the tools of synthetic biology to see if we can take those proteins and try to put them into an artificial system to make them better. So what we did was to actually combine the adhesive properties of mussels with the adhesive properties of bacteria. What we've done is to fuse those muscle foot protein genes with genes in E. coli that encode the production of what's known as curly fibers. Curly fibers are these extracellular fibers that bacteria make, and they're self-assembling fibers. And so what we've done now is to make these curly fibers 
fused with the muscle foot protein such that we have a big jumble of these fibers on the outside of the bacteria that display these muscle foot proteins, thus allowing us to get very strong adhesion to surfaces. So you inserted genes from the muscles, put them into E. coli, and essentially used them as mini bacterial factories in order to produce this glue. But how did you go about extracting it? That's right. So we took the DNA from the muscles. We can combine it with the DNA that encodes the curly fibers from E. coli. And then we basically insert that hybrid set of genes into bacteria and have them be factories to make a lot of these sticky, curly proteins. Now, the interesting thing is when you do this, the bacteria essentially make tons and tons of these fibers. And what you can do is extract fibers from the bacteria, either by cracking the cells open and pulling out those proteins. And then what we do is purify those proteins and then assemble the fibers in a test tube. Are you producing enough of this glue for an industrial scale here, or is this still very small steps at the moment? We've been primarily focused on small-scale production because we wanted to first verify that the materials have the desired properties. That being said, because we're making these glues in bacteria and there are a lot of well-validated industrial processes for making proteins out of bacteria, we believe we can scale this up into much larger settings to make practical-scale materials. There are a lot of potential applications. One, obviously, is to use the glues for underwater repair of ships and other underwater materials. Another possible application is to actually use this glue in patients, where you often want to adhere different pieces of tissue together in wet conditions in the body during surgery or other medical operations. Finding good underwater glues that can stick surfaces together and maintain that adhesive nature is a challenge. And so we think that with further development, these type of glues may also be useful for human applications. Timothy Liu at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they published that work this week in Nature Nanotechnology. If you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Naked Scientists. Don't forget, we're talking this week about the search for ET. According to the government's chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davies, the danger posed by bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics should be ranked along with terrorism on a list of threats to the nation. We need to tackle this problem head on by creating new antibiotic drugs, by using the ones we've got more carefully, and by developing new strategies to stop superbugs taking hold in the first place. This was the message at a conference in Cambridge entitled One Bug, One Drug. Representatives of pharmaceutical companies and drug discovery ventures got together to develop a plan of action. I went along to meet some of them and to hear about the approaches they're taking. Dame Sally Davies wasn't there this time, but her deputy, David Walker, was. We're facing a very important problem here. Progressively, bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics. Over the last 20 years, we've seen a decline in the production of new antibiotics, and so we face a problem in that we are having fewer and fewer antibiotics to treat more and more infections. And if we take this to its logical conclusion, what's the end of the story? Well, if we're not able to produce a steady supply of new antibiotic products, then more and more infections are going to become more difficult to treat and some of the more conventional procedures we use in medicine are going to become much more risky. Things like transplantation, joint replacements and, of course, the treatment of classical infections will become very difficult. Is there any evidence that this is actually happening? Uh, Yes, well, we are seeing increasing numbers of infections by resistant organisms and these not only have worse outcomes but they're also much more expensive to treat. Let's talk to a group of people who are actually working on pioneering the next generation of treatments to address the issues that David's raised. I'm Michael MacArthur, Procarda Biosystems. What we're trying to develop is a new class of antibacterials 
We do this by taking small fragments of the bacteria's own DNA, and these bind to key proteins called transcription factors that control gene expression. Without that ability, they're unable to cause disease and they rapidly die. So in a normal bacterial cell, they will make these chemicals called transcription factors, which go onto their DNA and turn genes on and off that the bacteria needs to control. You're saying if you put in bits of the bacterial DNA artificially, they could soak up all these transcription factors so they don't go where they're supposed to, and this is going to disrupt the ability of the bacteria to control themselves. That's right. It's a very simple approach. This means then that because you know what the genetic sequence of the bug you want to treat is, you could make little pieces of DNA, which means that they will exclusively target that microorganism, which would leave the good bacteria in the body untouched. That's right. Yes, we can develop bespoke um, antibacterials with a very narrow and defined spectrum. Where are you with this? Is it ready to go? So we're in the process of taking things into animal models. So that puts us about four or five years out from uh, what we would hope would be the successful clinical trials. My name's Ewan Harrison, and I'm a researcher in the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Cambridge. We're working on MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. In one form, it is a hospital superbug that's caused um, massive problems. We're also interested in this because there are some kinds of uh, MRSA that are now starting to become a problem, particularly in uh, continental Europe, and we think this is coming from uh, animal populations, in particular pigs. And we're working using genomics, so this is sequencing the DNA of the bacteria, to look at how the bacteria is moving from animal populations into people. And so to do this, we construct a a family tree of the bacteria and we look for the direction that we think that the bacteria are moving. Hello, I'm Vanya Gant. I'm a consultant microbiologist at UCLH in London. Uh, I'm leading a group to develop some diagnostics whereby you can find those antibiotic-resistant bugs more quickly. But my other interest, which I think really, really does need to be followed up, relates to probiotics. These are the so-called good bacteria, and they live in our bowels. And one of the things they do is they keep the bad bacteria out. I have a very strong suspicion that it might be possible to keep the bad bacteria out by feeding people large amounts of probiotics. This will outcompete the bad guys, but only in the intestine, surely. I mean, if one of your patients has already got an infection in their brain or in their, their chest, you can feed them all the bugs that you like, but it's not going to treat their chest infection. Yes, that's true. But it, in my field of work, I'd say well over three quarters of the life-threatening infections arise from those bugs that live in the intestines. And when you haven't got any immunity, they then end up in the blood and the brain and wherever else they can cause trouble. Have you got a strategy that will enable us to do this? Well, yes, I have got a strategy. The big problem with probiotics is that 98% of them, as you buy them over the counter, just do not work. Because you eat them, they go into your stomach, the acid kills them, and they don't actually ever end up in your intestine to do you any good. So people are wasting their money effectively, aren't they? That's exactly right. I know of one or possibly only two compounds in liquid form in this country that survive stomach acid and actually do what they say on the tin. We have to do a proper trial whereby half the patients get the probiotics and the other half don't. And we have a look for positive health benefits in terms of controlling antibiotic resistance and possibly even being able to get rid of the bad bugs that have set up home in these patients' intestines. UCL's Vanya Gant with what sounds like pretty damning indictments of most probiotics. Cat.
Brightly coloured caterpillars are commonplace in the garden. Their colour acts as a warning to birds that they taste unpleasant and shouldn't be eaten. But other caterpillars, which you probably haven't noticed, prefer to go undercover. They adopt what's known as cryptic colouring, camouflaging themselves to blend in with the greenery. But why would different species use such different tactics to avoid becoming a blackbird's lunch? That's a mystery that Hannah Cocco has been trying to solve with the help of some plasticine and a bike. One thing that a caterpillar needs to do is to grow, but the other very, very important thing she needs to do is to avoid being eaten. And some caterpillars seem to do this by trying to hide as well as they can. So they have cryptic coloration. It's really hard to find them in vegetation. But others seem to do exactly the opposite. They look extremely brightly colored. They have stripes, they have hairs, all kinds of things. And these are basically signals that if you're going to eat me, something nasty will happen. So they are often toxic. But the question is, why do we have both strategies in use in nature and what determines who does what? How do you figure out what's going on? The method was actually really clever here. So we had this PhD student with a bicycle and she was going around the entire area and placing tiny little artificial larvae uh, that everybody had created uh, out of plasticine. And these could be either cryptically colored, uh, so hard to find, or they could have this sort of very bright orange spots. And she placed them in vegetation. And the nice thing about plasticine is that if you're a bird that tries to attack this larva, you can see that later because, of course, the bird can't eat it, but there's these beak marks that are left there later. So we can come back to the same places again five days later and then see which larva have, so to speak, died. I don't think I've ever heard of a scientific experiment involving a bicycle and plasticine before. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really, it wasn't me who came up with that, but it's great. So what did you find? I mean, which were the, the kind of the little brown and green larva? Did they get eaten or the brightly coloured ones? There was a really clear change, actually two changes over the season. So very early in the season, when there's only adult birds around, they are still incubating, there's no fledglings. The bright coloration was actually a protection. In the middle of the season, it was very different patterns. It was actually better to be cryptic. And then late in the season, it switched again. So the interpretation is that in the middle of the season, we have these young birds. They have no idea about life. They just go for whatever is easy to find. Uh, so that's when the brightly colored caterpillars get attacked. They get eaten. The birds are learning, but in the process, they are killing their prey. Later in the season, they have actually learned that, oh, this bright colored thing might actually be very distasteful so therefore I better avoid it. Uh, so late in the season it's again better to have these warning colors from the caterpillar perspective. We looked in addition uh, to this to this artificial um, experiment we looked at almost 700 species all the relevant species of caterpillars that actually occur in Finland where the study was conducted and it looked like they did have different strategies depending on when in the season they are growing. If it was a very early occurring species, so that the larvae are eating their things in um, early June and so on, then they were bright. In the middle of the season, they were trying to hide as well as they could. And the late occurring species, they were again really bright, which is kind of cool because it totally matches the survival pattern that we get in the plasticine experiment. This is a lovely example, I guess, of the, the insect population almost working in tandem with the bird population. Do you think this is going to happen for other systems if you look at that? 
of course, they have totally different goals. I mean, the birds want to find food and the, the caterpillars want exactly the opposite. They, they don't want the birds to find food. But I could imagine that these sort of uh, species communities in general, uh, the, there can be interactions between species that you wouldn't initially think about because essentially what's happening here is that the late occurring uh, caterpillars, they are kind of exploiting the, you could call it the education effort of the earlier occurring species that are teaching their predators year after year again that these are the colours that you should be avoiding. Hannah Kocko from the University of Zurich. Also in the news this week, we've been getting our heads around making the right choice. Do you base your decisions on past experience or go for a completely random approach? A study in rats uncovers how the brain copes with complex choices. You can hear this interview along with others at thenakedscientist.com slash specials. On to the main part of the show now. This week we're looking for life beyond Earth. This is the sound of the universe, as various spacecraft have heard it over the last 50 years. And through the voice of the electromagnetic spectrum, we can listen to space. T-minus one minute and counting. But is there anything out there that can actually hear us? Well, remarkably, we're making progress in answering that question. In the last few years, we've discovered that our galaxy is teeming with alien planets. But the big question does remain, do any of them harbour life? Coming up, how do we define life and how did it begin? What can we tell about planets thousands of light years away and how many alien civilizations they might be home to? Now, to many people, astrobiology means the hunt for alien life. But a big part of this is understanding what life actually is and what's needed for it to exist. Everywhere we look on Earth, there's an endless variety of shapes and sizes, right through from microbes at the smaller scale to elephants at the top end of the scale. But how do we actually define life? What is life and how is it different from non-life? Well, Nick Lane is a biochemist and his work focuses on the origins of life. He's with us. Hello, Nick. Hello. So how do we tell what's alive like a mouse from a brick, because chemically they're both made of very similar things. <laughs> it is notoriously difficult to do. And, and actually, I think it's almost pointless to try to define life. I mean, there's hundreds of definitions of life out there, and they're all wrong in one way or another. And the problem is that life is really a continuum from a non-living state to a living state. And there's all kinds of intermediate stages. So is a virus alive or not is, is, is a question which is often discussed. It's really what life does rather than what it is. And in all these cases, life is making copies of itself and it's using the environment to do so. So one of the problems with most attempts to define life is that it excludes the environment. All life parasitizes the environment in one way or another. So plants do. They require sunlight. They require carbon dioxide, they require water and so on. That's all they require. We parasitize the environment a lot more. We go around eating plants and so on. But essentially all life is parasitizing an environment which is providing it with its energy needs to make copies of itself. So I think you'd say there are about six different things that a cell requires 
It requires a carbon source to make more copies of itself. It requires energy to bind things together, to make polymers and to, to, to produce more cells. It requires excretion. You've got to get rid of the waste products and the end products to drive reactions in a forward direction. There has to be some form of compartmentalization, a cell-like structure that, uh, that, that makes the insides different from the outside. There have to be catalysts, uh, the beginnings of biochemical reactions. And then there has to be some form of replication. Now, I think that those are the six properties of life that we really need to look for. You said that there has to be a carbon source. To what extent is the life we see here on Earth so unique to this environment that you're not going to find it anywhere else? Or do you think that if another planet Earth-like environment exists out there, that life will take exactly the same pathway of evolution that it has here and we will be looking at our mirror image out there somewhere? I think there's actually a good argument to say that life could end up, at least at the bacterial level, remarkably similar. I mean, there's a strong argument to say that carbon is really better than anything else. It's much better than silicon, for example, at forming you know, complex bonds between, between molecules. And it's also available, you know, carbon is far more available in the universe than silicon. And also there are gaseous uh, carbon oxides, carbon dioxide and so on. It's like a Lego brick, whereas silicon oxides, are, you know, sand and so on, you can't really bootstrap yourself up from the ground with sand. You can't build on sand. So you're sort so, of saying that because the, the rules of physics and chemistry are universal throughout yes. the universe, therefore exactly the same constraints will exist wherever you live, Milky Way or even the Andromeda galaxy, and therefore uh, you're going to end up following the same sorts of pathways. I think, yes, it's possible. We can conceive that life could have operated in different ways. But if you think about the probability of finding life, carbon, water, the kind of rocks that are required for hydrothermal systems and so on, they are all very common. So the kind of life that we have here is likely to be the kind of life that we find elsewhere as well. The Earth's four and a half billion years old. So how long after the Earth formed did life first pop up? Well, we don't really know. There's a lot of arguments about it. A kind of glib answer would be about four billion years ago. There are fractionated isotopes of carbon and so on in ancient rocks from about 3.9 billion years ago. There's a lot of debate about whether that signifies life or not. Uh, but I think most people think, on balance, it probably does. Where do you think that life came from? What sorts of theories are out there to explain how life arose? Did it arrive de novo, in other words, from scratch here? Or is it possible that... It it could have had some kind of injection of some processes from, say, outer space. Well, we, we know for sure that there have been plenty of organic molecules delivered from space on meteorites. There's no question about that. Whether, it, whether it, that prompted life on Earth in some way, uh, conceptually, it, what it does really is stock a soup. And so conceptually, it's not really any different to, say, the Miller-Urey experiment from 50, 60 years ago, showing that lightning and UV radiation and so on can also produce organic molecules. So can hydrothermal vent systems. It's actually remarkably easy in some ways to produce organic molecules and remarkably difficult to get beyond beyond a soup. So would you be in favour then of the idea that life just spontaneously started or do you think that actually that there is credence to this idea that there could have been life coming from elsewhere, maybe, maybe intact life coming from elsewhere in the universe? There's no evidence to suggest that it did. And actually, I think it's a pointless theory in the sense that if it did come from somewhere else, well, we still don't know any more about how life started elsewhere. I think we'll never know exactly how life started on Earth. But what we can know, uh, what are the principles that lead to the origin of life from a non-living environment? And that's what we're looking for in trying to understand the origin of life here. And panspermia, the delivery of life from space, is it, it just moves the problem somewhere else. So it's pointless.
Nick Lane from UCL, thank you very much. We're stepping away from Earth now to look at our closest planetary neighbour, and it turns out Mars is getting a bit crowded. A new NASA vessel slipped into the red planet's orbit last week, followed closely by India's satellite sending back its first pictures of the Martian surface, while a number of other countries, Russia, China and Japan, have all announced space programmes to explore the red planet. But why? Well, rather than looking for little green men, actually, they're searching for evidence that Mars was once habitable, and if so, whether there might be any fossilised evidence of organisms there. And we're joined by Dr Lewis Darnell. He's an astrobiologist specialising in this. Hi, Lewis. Hello. What makes Mars a potential climate for life and what sort of life might we be looking at? Well, in many ways, at least early Mars, the kind of primordial Mars, was very much like the early Earth. We think it would have been a warmer, wetter world than we find it today. And with the rovers that you've just been mentioning, we found extensive evidence for kind of rivers and babbling brooks. And Curiosity touched uh, last year what was essentially river mud on, on, the, on the bottom of one of these babbling brooks and has looked into the kind of chemistry of the minerals we find there and realised that water wouldn't have been too acidic or too alkaline or too salty. It would, it would have been very clement, a very habitable environment for life. So you could have done, you could have travelled in a time machine kind of four billion years into the Martian past, stooped down on the banks of that babbling brook and dunked in a glass and, and drunken that Martian river water. It, it would have been the perfect environment for life to got started in and to have been sustained in. We're talking just about bacteria. Yeah, here. exactly. So we're not talking about little green men, perhaps little green cells, perhaps there's things like cyanobacteria, which photosynthesized on Earth and would have been pumping up our oxygen-rich atmosphere. Maybe there's something as complex as cyanobacteria on Mars, but we're not hoping for multicellular life and certainly not kind of bug-eyed aliens. <laughs> yeah, let's certainly hope Thankfully. not. We've learned a lot from the Curiosity rover, but uh, in terms of finding this clay... Is there any chance that we can actually understand if there were bacteria in it? Yeah, so, so far we've been trying to characterise what the Martian environment would have been like, whether it was habitable. And what we really want to be doing next is to see if life did get started there, if we can find so-called biosignatures or signs of life. And what I'm directly involved in at the University of Leicester is the next ESA, the European Space Agency mission, called ExoMars. And this will have life detection equipment on board. It's got something called a Raman spectrometer, which can tell you not just the kind of minerals you're looking at, but if there's organic molecules or other signs of life. So this is a really exciting mission to be working on. And when you think about life on another planet, we think about life on our own planet, it's all based on DNA and this kind of thing. And is there reason to believe that life on other planets would be based on that kind of nucleic acid? Well, as Nick was saying a bit earlier, carbon is just really good at doing chemistry. And so if we're looking for life on other planets and moons, we're going to be looking for organic chemistry, organic life, because simply we know it works. Hi, <laughs> here we are. So it makes most sense look for the kind of life that A, you know works, and B, you would have a good shot at detecting chemical signs of it. But also you don't want to be too specific. You want to kind of keep quite an open mind and perhaps not look for things like DNA itself, but signs of complex organic chemistry in general. So there's always that kind of dramatic tension between trying to be broad-minded so you can find stuff which is by definition different to you, alien, but also have a good chance of finding it. And I, I guess if you did find DNA, that might tell you that perhaps Perhaps there is credence to their sort of DNA or organisms floating about in space and hopping off on different planets. Well, actually, DNA isn't isn't particularly stable in, in rock over long periods of time. And we'd be looking for things like amino acids. And what actually might be the very best outcome for life on Mars? If we find organic molecules and we find amino acids and realise that those amino acids are the same handedness as, as life on Earth, i.e. that they have, have selected the same mirror image version of amino acids, that would be a, a very intriguing outcome, but also might be 
quite frustrating because we would find it difficult to be able to tell if we'd find Martian life, something that had its own independent genesis on Mars, or maybe found terrestrial life that contaminated Mars, either billions of years ago inside a meteorite, or perhaps more recently with one of you know our own dirty probes. Perhaps we kind of find our own dirty oh, fingerprints. <laughs> so the, out- the best possible outcome would be to find amino acids on Mars that have got one particular handedness, i.e. it's definitely a product of life, but is right-handed, not left-handed, because that was tell us that it is Martian life, not terrestrial life. And what you've said implies that we might be looking for life that is long gone and not there anymore. Do you think there's any chance that there could be kind of living life? So, so the Martian surface today is a really unpleasant place to find yourself. And, and the whole planet suffered some kind of environmental catastrophe, some kind of climactic decline. So life on the surface has probably been driven extinct. And, and the, the surface of Mars now is, is drenched in ultraviolet radiation and radiation from outer space, the cosmic rays that I study. But you only have to go a couple of meters underground to get protection from that. But if you're looking for life that is like living and active today, you'd probably have to go several kilometers underground, whether you know the warm innards of the planet enough to have thawed out that ice into liquid water, which is what active life needs. So perhaps decades and decades down the line, we might start envisioning almost kind of industrial action on Mars to drill very deep into the crust and find if there's if there's an active biosphere down there. So future generations of scientists, when we land there, they'll be like digging down, this, this looking, is it, looking exactly. for the alien civilization. Exactly. For that, you'd probably have to have humans on Mars rather than just robots, which we're sending at the moment. But I mean, are you optimistic that we will find life there? Where, where, do, you, where do you sit on the scale? I, I kind of bet my career on it in that sense. <laughs> that I'm pursuing a career in astrobiology. And I think it's, there's a good enough chance to find something in my career, my lifetime, that it is worthwhile to kind of be, be spending time on. I just find it absolutely fascinating as well. Like there, were, there are a few areas of science which I think are so potentially profound if we get the answer we're looking for. And you find yourself staring up at the night sky, just looking up at it and going, I wonder if anything's blinking back. Waving. Do you wave? <laughs> No, do you wave, cat? Sometimes. It's a little window into your psyche. <laughs> Just in case. Anyway, we'll be coming back to uh, to both Lewis and Nick Lane later. That's alien hunter Dr. Lewis Dartnell and his quest to find microbial Martians. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're looking for extraterrestrial life this week. But first of all, how do we find a potential home for intelligent life? Well, one way is by looking at the Goldilocks zone. This is the planetary zone around a star where it's not too hot and it's not too cold, just like the porridge. And measuring how the spectrum or colour of light from a star changes when it passes through the atmosphere of any planet can tell you what's in the atmospheres of those planets. And someone who's doing this in a technique similar to it is astrophysicist from Cambridge, Eleanor Backus, who's with us. I've given the noddy guide to this, but explain in a bit more detail actually how this works. How can we tell what is in the atmosphere of a far distant planet, light years away? So certain molecules you have or certain chemical elements, they absorb and re-emit different colours of wavelengths. So if you imagine looking at a white light source and you split this light up into different colours like you would if you're seeing a rainbow, we're looking for colours that are missing or colours that are more intense than we might otherwise expect them to be. And that will give us an indication of what sort of elements or compounds are in the atmospheres of these planets. I mentioned that the light coming through the atmosphere, do we only look in that way or could we look at the reflected light from a, an orbiting planet and do the same thing? Yeah, so that's that's a lot more difficult. But what you basically have here are two different methods of looking at the spectrum of a planet. The one where you have the light coming through the atmosphere is known as transiting. So you're looking at the planet as it passes in front of the star. And then the other method that was mentioned is actually what I work on, which is called direct imaging. And we're looking for the light that's coming specifically from the planet. And this light in the cases where the planet's habitable will be light reflected 
off the exoplanet's atmosphere that's actually coming from the star. How far away are the objects you're studying? So the nearest star is maybe about four light years away, and we do think there's a planet around there, but we can't sort of maybe ten light years at most at the moment. So it's really very, very close by in terms of the size of the galaxy, let alone the size of the universe. How do you do these experiments? Because I would think that the light that's coming from the star is tremendously bright compared with anything that's reflected off a little planet next door. So how do you get away the light from the star compared with the planet itself? Uh, with an awful lot of difficulty, really. Oh, no, you're shaking <laughs> your head. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly hard. Uh, so... It's There's some very, very, very complicated instrumentation involved, which, to be honest, it took me about a year to get my own head around. But fundamentally, we can focus the light from the star into a specific region on the telescope and sort of channel it away. And then, hopefully, after an awful lot of post-processing and complicated computer algorithms, get like a couple of pixels, which is a tiny blob, and you point at that and go, that's probably a planet, maybe, we hope. <laughs> so there's a little way to go at the moment, yes. you're sort of saying. but. If I were to look at a planet, how would I tell whether the molecules in the atmosphere are indicating a planet which could be home to life or could provide a hospitable environment from one which wouldn't? What sort of parameters are you looking at? I mentioned earlier something called biosignatures, um, and these are really the important things that we're looking for. And in terms of looking at exoplanets, we're looking for specific gases really in the atmosphere um, that can only really be created by life. So the common examples that people often use are things like oxygen and methane in our atmosphere, where they're sort of metabolic byproducts and we can't produce them in the levels that we see in our atmosphere by any sort of geological or photochemical processes. They have to be produced biologically. There was some controversy on Mars, though, wasn't there, with these methane seeps? People said, oh, look, this is perhaps evidence of subsurface microorganisms or something like that. They, they've largely backed down from that theory, so... That still leaves you in the same sort of situation, doesn't it? Because all you can see is literally the signature of a chemical. You, you can't distinguish between, say, different heavier or lighter forms, which a, a life scientist could do on Earth to distinguish a, a life-giving process versus a non-life generating process. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. So a lot of work at the moment is going into coming up with what possible biosignatures we might have. And to be honest, I don't think we really have any at the moment that are definitively, if you saw this, you would know there was life there. All of them have a kind of false positive scenario, which we would have to sort of try and rule out by just looking at maybe other elements that we can see in the atmosphere or trying to find out sort of more fundamental parameters about the planet. So where it is in the habitable zone, that sort of thing. Well, Eleanor, good luck in your hunt for habitable planets. That's Eleanor Bacchus. She's an astrophysicist from the University of Cambridge. So we can probably detect places that might harbour life and we might be able to tell whether it's intelligent or not, perhaps. But what are the odds that it's there at all? 50 years ago, astrobiologist Frank Drake proposed an equation that now bears his name to estimate the likelihood of discovering intelligent extraterrestrial life in the galaxy. Astrophysicist Duncan Forgan has been using computer modelling together with recent astronomical discoveries to build on Frank Drake's work to get a more accurate idea of whether there's anybody out there, as he explained to Greg Jackson. Well, the Drake equation is a series of seven or eight terms, depending on who you speak to. These terms get multiplied together, and when those terms are multiplied together, you get a number. And that number tells you, if you look up in the night sky, that's how many communicating intelligent species there are. 
Okay, so in this Drake equation, you start with how many stars are forming every year in our galaxy, and then you subtract out all the stars that don't have any planets around them, right? Because you can't have life there. And then you subtract out all the planets that are too far or too close to the sun to support life, and so on and so on. You get the idea. Until finally, you come up with the number of planets with intelligent life that could transmit radio signals and be alive right now. So when you slot all the numbers into this equation, what do you get? Typically, when I try and write down numbers in this equation, I get the total number of intelligent civilizations to come out in quite small numbers, so say 10 civilizations in the Milky Way at this point in time. 10. Does that include us or exclude us? Strictly speaking, that includes us. So you should take one off. It should be nine. (laughs) (laughs) Nine? That's even worse. Yes, it's it's quite a tough challenge. Before we get into this, I should just point out that SETI scientists and astrobiologists don't use Drake's equation as a predictive tool. It's quite clear that it's very simple and it kind of cuts out a lot of the, the nuance and the sophistication required to make an answer to that kind of question. I'm wondering, though, 50 years on, is there not a better way to make a more informed guess? Other ways you can look at this this question would be to say, OK, we have statistical information on how stars form. We can say things in a similar vein about the, the masses of planets. Um, we can say things about the likelihood of them existing at a certain distance from the star. So you can build up a statistical picture of what the Milky Way looks like in terms of its star and planet population. And once you have that, then you can essentially build a a model in which you can test different scenarios. So what predictions have you been able to make? So when I first started doing this, I ran several different scenarios. Some were quite optimistic and some were quite pessimistic. And over the course of the Milky Way's existence, I showed that there would be somewhere between, you know, 300 and 30,000. Not so many, given how many stars and planets there are out there then. That's right. Of course, these are very speculative numbers still because we're still stuck with the same problem that we just don't know how life forms uh, on other worlds and we don't know really how that life becomes intelligent. So you're, you're still saddled with these uncertainties. But you can say, given our uncertainties and making some sensible educated guesses, here are some nice sensible looking bounds in which we can put those numbers. Even when you take a, a fairly optimistic view of, uh, of the equation and you put in some quite generous values for some of the terms, and if you get a number that's, say, tens of thousands, which sounds like a much bigger number, the Milky Way is very big. It's very big in space. It's about 100,000 light years across, and it, it's also very big in time. It's billions of years old. So we have this kind of dual quandary of how you get two civilizations to be close to each other in space and close to each other in time to appear at about the same time that if one sends a radio signal, the other can see it before the other civilization goes defunct for whatever reason that might be. And by Duncan's calculations, intelligent life that can transmit radio signals across the galaxy are likely to be alive for just 1,000 years. A thousand years in a galaxy that is 13.2 billion years old, with 300 billion stars and many, many more planets. When you take all of this into account, it seems pretty improbable that if there is anyone up there that will ever get the chance to talk. The probability might be low, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's improbable. So even if we carry out uh, a search knowing that we're likely to fail, actually failing in the search is quite important because, again, 
I'm just a theorist with a computer making some assumptions. At the end of the day, if you want to do it scientifically, you have to go out there and test it. So you've got to make sure that you've got observations to back up your theories. And if we made a, a null detection after a, a significant and deep search, that has a lot of information in it, as well as the opposite case where we did detect something. It would still tell us something quite fundamental and important about what it means to be, to be human. I was going to say, what would that mean if we were the only sentient beings out there? It means that our existence is quite lonely and quite unique um, and that human life, life in itself is even more precious than we might have thought originally. And in some senses, I guess, then that would also mean that intelligent life of the whole galaxy rests on our shoulders. Well, in that sense, the stewardship of the Earth is not the only thing we are stewards of. We become stewards of uh, a much larger volume of the universe, and we have to be very careful and look after it if that is the case. Um, so again, that has very strong implications for how we should behave as a civilization. Dr Duncan Forgan from St Andrews speaking with Greer Jackson. Now Duncan raises some pretty important issues there about the likelihood of ever being able to find and communicate with life in our galaxy, let alone the universe. Given that the chances are so slim, should we really bother? Would the money, the time and the effort and so on be better directed elsewhere? Well, let's first of all put that question to Eleanor Backus from Cambridge University, who is looking for, as you just heard, planets out there and finding out the composition of their atmosphere. But are there spin-offs of, of your technology, do you think, Eleanor? Um, yeah, so there, well, to be honest, there's an awful lot of funding around for exoplanets at the moment because it's a really, well, it's a really trendy subject in astrophysics. There's a lot of grants for it. And this is pushing our technology because it's such a difficult problem. It's pushing technology to sort of limits that people couldn't really imagine before. And this is sort of spun off into medical uses as well. So sort of some of our telescope technology is actually used in um, looking at people's eyes um, is one of the uses I came across that I wasn't aware of before, which is pretty astounding. It's ironic to think of turning the telescope round, isn't it, yeah. and taking something very powerful to look at something very minuscule. I think also someone said to me that um, if it wasn't for, astro for astronomy and astrophysics, we wouldn't have Wi-Fi that we all use on the internet every day. And of course, the, the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, world's most powerful telescope they're building, that's going to generate as much data in a day as the whole world generates in a year at the moment. So we've got to, to marshal big data better. Um, Nick Lane, what do you think about this, this whole business of looking for life out there? Do you think we should be looking for, for life in Cambridge before we should be looking for life elsewhere in the universe? First. Yeah, I think I think it's overwhelmingly likely that life will uh, arise on more or less any wet, rocky planet, uh, including Mars. I would agree with Lewis. I, I would be very disappointed if it hadn't. Um, but complex life, uh, like ourselves, I think that's far, far more rare. All complex life on Earth only arose once uh, in four billion years, uh, and so that's highly improbable for whatever reasons that we're trying to understand. Should we therefore look for complex life out in the rest of the universe? I would say yes, because we don't understand what the reasons are here. We're trying to get we're trying to get at it, but again, observational data is the only thing that's going to give us any kind of an answer. And Lewis Dartnell, in thirty seconds, uh, SETI, yes or no? Um, I my personal belief is that SETI will not detect anything. There is no other intelligent civilization in our galaxy. However. I think we should still be looking for it because it's an incredibly cheap thing to do, but the repercussions would be so incredibly profound if we if we find an interstellar text message tomorrow. Ed Wilson's tweeted at Naked Scientist, we can surely never know that there are no other communicating species out there. And if you would like to get in touch with us, it's chris at nakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Thank you very much to our studio guests this week, Lewis Dartnell, Nick Lane and Eleanor Backus. And now to finish the programme, we have Question of the Week with Amelia Perry, who's been on a quest to find out the history of mankind. 
We've been busy discovering the answer to this question from Colin in South Africa. How many people have ever lived since Homo sapiens evolved? And secondly, how would one calculate this number? Carl Horb, a senior demographer at the Population Reference Bureau, has been tapping away on his calculator to work this out, and he arrived at this number. 107 billion, 602 million, 707,791. That's very specific, but how on earth did Carl work this out? Any estimate will require two factors. First, the length of time Homo sapiens are thought to have been around, which is agreed to be about 50,000 years ago. And second, the average size of the human population at different periods in time. Richard Weber, a statistician from the University of Cambridge, explains how Carl calculated this. To find that number, what one really needs to know is what have been the birth rates and death rates of human beings throughout all of history. And then one can do a calculation from year to year, how many new people are born, how many people die, add that on, and keep doing that year by year to figure out the world's population today and the number of people that have died along the way. Well, it's thought that 50,000 years ago that people didn't live very long. How do we know that people only lived on average 10 to 12 years? Well, by looking at skeletal remains and doing carbon dating and things like that. That means that a twelfth of the population is dying each year, and the birth rate must be at least that amount to keep going. In modern times, of course, it becomes to be a bit different. In modern times, people live on average longer, maybe 65 years. The birth rate is less, and maybe only 20 births per thousand per year. If we adjust these figures, through history and make sensible assumptions, then we can arrive at this figure of 107 billion people who have ever been born. That's a massive number, and increasing as we speak. Estimates state that across the world, four babies are born every second. So in fact, whilst you've been listening to The Naked Scientists, 15,045 more people are now living on our planet. Thanks to both Carl and Richard. Next week, we're finding out the answer to this electrifying question from Ahmed from South Africa. I was struck by lightning twice while I was on the telephone. On both occasions, my ears were ringing for days and the pain was excruciating. What I wish to know is, was I just unlucky or am I prone to attract lightning? Is there anything I can do to protect myself in the future? Unlucky Ahmed. So what do you think? If you've got an idea about how best to answer his question, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That is it for this week. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson for production. Join us next week when we'll be kicking off the month with our Future Of series. We'll be diving forward to see what the next 100 years holds for us. How will we cope with the problems of climate change and overcrowding? And will we be flying around in drones, powering our mobile phones with our heartbeats, or living underground in earth scrapers? All this in the next month, so do join us next week for our first episode. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name is Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.